Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to point out that if Hannibal Lecter could run a 4-3-40, he would have been drafted by the Oakland Raiders, and they would just say that he had an eating disorder. And that man is the captain. And he'd probably complain about the fit of his helmet. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are drinking Cheer Team Ale by Three Floyds Brewing Company. This is big, bold, juicy, and fruity. A New England IPA. ABV 7.1% garage grade. Four and a half bottle caps out of five. And this week's beer was brought to us by our very good friends joining us in the garage. We have Brianne in Yatehe, New Mexico. And a big shout out to Carrie G and Parts Unknown. Next up, we have Sadie and her awesome father listening in Branson, Missouri. And a big what up to Sarah in Madison, Wisconsin. Next, we have Danny in Springtown, Texas. And Captain, this is how far behind we are on the shout out line. Right. Danny wants us to cover the missing Fort Worth trio, which, of course, we did some point after he donated to the beer fund of course so thank you to danny that is a fascinating case and he says that we would make excellent baseball commentators cubs wayne cubs wayne it looks like we're going to have a career after this gig is over right swing and a mess and last but certainly not least here is a supercharged cheers to anna and beautiful beautiful delaware ohio thank you to everybody for helping out with this week's beer fund if you want to help fill up the fridge for next week's show Go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the donate button. And for all of our old episodes, check our show out on the Stitcher app. And we have a weekly show called Off the Record. So if you need more garage, go sign up. You can go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on Off the Record. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. 
we have seven bodies in this investigation, a huge investigation going on, and a lot of media coverage. Now, law enforcement, they were worried that the discovery of the bodies and the media coverage that followed could invoke an evil reaction from our undetected serial killer, where he might go on a mass murdering spree, ultimately seeking more victims, more chaos and panic, and a suicide by cop ending. And we have these extensive profiles, but really we don't have a ton of evidence. The biggest evidence that we probably have in this whole scenario is the bullets that they left behind from the target practice. Yeah, the cuts and stab wounds are not extremely valuable from a clue standpoint. You know, we've discussed this before. It's just difficult matching these up to a knife or another sharp object when you have nothing to compare them to. Now, the bindings are of good value, though. Anything that was used to bind the victims, in some of these cases, we know that they used rope and electrical tape, that sort of thing. So, yes, Captain, you're exactly right. The the most valuable clues that they're going to have are the bullets, the shell casings, the cartridge containers, as well as these ropes and electrical tape that was used on the victims. Yeah, I, I would assume that it would be hard but not impossible to take these shell casings and, and figure out where uh, possibly they bought these from or what what rough location. So in late 1993, the Task Force Air was formed. They were to spearhead this serial killer investigation. The task force was made up of more than 20 detectives and analysts. On top of this, a large reward was offered to the public for information on what the press were calling at the time the Belanglo serial killings. The profiles were made, as we discussed, and they were made public. The task force was established, and now they're begging the public for help. So where does that get you? It gets you a ton of info to sift through, which is extremely difficult just to organize and catalog everything that's coming in. The task force, one of their first jobs is to simply organize all of this information and then to find a constructive way to apply it to the investigation. And as for the investigation, hell, just with 20 different task force members, you have a lot of moving pieces. And so some sort of checks and balances is required. You need to know for sure that so-and-so did speak to this suspect or this witness and that the information was collected and appropriately cataloged because there is just so much of it. Some of the focus is really going to be the gun angle, right, Captain? We know that we have bullets that were found at the scene. We know that we have two different calibers. We, we're looking through gun licenses. That's what police wanted to do. They're going to look through gun licenses to try to provide some leads in the way of who is their guy or who is their killers. I've seen some numbers in this case, and some were as big as that investigators may have been talking or seeking to talk to over 2,000 persons just in relation to the gun angle. But with all of their hard work, effort, and analysis... They really were looking at over 200 possible good suspects, not just people that have a gun license. Right. 
eventually taking that 200 possible suspects and breaking that down to about 30. Some persons of interest without going through all 30 or so of them. Now, remember, guns may be how they're able to find the killer or killers. So they, amongst other strategies, are going around to gun clubs and interviewing members at these gun clubs. At one such club, they were interviewing members, and these members told investigators to talk to a man named Alex Malat. So Alex, he had a strange story to tell. He sat down and spoke with these investigators. He said that one night in April of 1992, now, mind you, this is around the disappearance of two of our victims. Yeah. He says that he and a friend were driving home that night from the gun club. And as they neared a service road to the Belanglo State Forest, they passed two vehicles. One, I believe, was a car and the other was a 4 by 4 In this scenario, he tells the investigators that he saw a woman, a single woman, in each one of those vehicles, right? And also in the vehicle with them were a group of men. The women, he says, were bound. They were, I don't I take that back. I don't know that he said that they were bound. I know he said that they were gagged. Mm -hmm. But his description of this scenario is that the women, likely, they look to have been abducted. They're with these men. They don't want to be in the car. And he goes on to give very good, detailed information regarding the men and what they look like as well. He's unable to give any plate numbers regarding these vehicles. Police, of course, are going to find this extremely interesting for any number of reasons, really. What they're going to do is they locate the man that he says he was traveling with that night. They speak with him. The man verifies some portions of this story. Basically, that yes, I was with Alex that night. Yes, we went to the gun club. We took that route home. And I believe that, yeah, I did see two vehicles that night. He says nothing about the women being in the vehicles. He says nothing about the men being in the vehicles, nor does he give any type of description of, of yeah, anybody or that, anything that's going on. Never mind that. If, if, if the gagging part didn't come up, like, I mean, if you're driving home with your buddy and you see some girls quote unquote gagged, you'd think that would come up in conversation, right? And if it comes up in conversation, it's not something that you're going to forget, especially right. if you can remember being at the gun club that day and taking that route home that night. So that's that's what is is really a, truly a weird scenario because we have two victims that went missing right around that time. We have Alex Millette who's saying that he saw two females in these vehicles that looked like they were abducted, yet here's the other thing too. Until police came looking for him, he never bothered to share this information with anybody. He never took it to police. He never t said, hey, I saw something strange going on. Or, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't do this when he didn't do it that night. So he didn't seem to be concerned of, of these two women. He didn't do it when the bodies were found. And as you just pointed out, he very likely didn't even mention it to the man sitting in the vehicle with him that night. Right. Because apparently, given their statements, they didn't see the same things. Right. So it seems like it's a half-truth story. Yeah, he may have, in fact, have seen two vehicles there that night, but is he making up what he saw inside of those vehicles? That's a sick thing for somebody to make up. 
Yeah, well, you have to wonder, one, why would he be making it up? Or two, if in fact that is what he saw, why didn't he tell anybody? Why yeah. did he choose not to tell anybody? Then there's another person uh, police, police are talking about. Uh, this is one of their persons of interest. And this comes from a tipster that called in regarding a man named Richard Millette. Richard told a coworker, and this is according to the coworker, right? This is alleged what he told them. Richard said in regards to the backpack murders that there is a German couple out there, that they haven't found all of the bodies yet. This is before the German couple was in fact found. Mm -hmm. He tells someone else, I know who killed the German couple. Other odd things and comments that he was saying, he told someone how easy it would be to abduct someone out in the area of the Belanglo serial killings. Mm -hmm. He told someone that stabbing a woman or cutting a woman was just, and forgive me, Captain, I've seen this reported several different ways, that he said that it, it was like cutting a loaf of bread. And then one of the other sources say that he said cutting a woman was like cutting a banana. So I'm, I'm not sure which one he, in fact, used or allegedly said. But still, some very odd, strange statements coming from this man here. I do want to point out a few things about what it is that alleged that he had said, right? The first, there is a German couple out there. They haven't found all of the bodies yet. This may seem strange given just that one statement that, and even in fact, when you apply it with all the others that we went through, but just that short little statement does seem strange, but we also need to keep in mind as we reported, there were reports out there in June that there was a missing German couple. So that that's not like it was some top secret information that was right, public right. information to anybody that read those papers. Hey, there there's, there's a German couple that is believed to be missing since regarding that newspaper article it had been over six months by that point. And then on top of that, when they found the first two victims, when they found the first two bodies, what was the statement given by law enforcement at the time? We're going to find more bodies. We expect to find more bodies. So really when you dissect his statement, it's actually nothing that he could, that anybody couldn't have come up with. Right. Right. And, Again, this is big news, and, and they d don't want, you know, hitchhikers or tourists going missing. So it, is it just one of those things where you go, okay, they're going to find more bodies. Well, what about that missing couple that's still missing? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not that far of a stretch to get, get to there. The other thing, too, is, is pointing out how easy he believed it would be to abduct somebody out in that area, that specific area. I don't find that to be too incredibly of an odd statement. Do well, here's, here's what's odd. We have two individuals with the same last name, both mm -hmm. seem what somewhat telling like half truths. Right. So what's that all about? Well, I think the most, the strangest statement by Richard would be the one of, I know who killed the German couple. Yes. The thing I would like to backtrack on, which I couldn't find through all the digging. It, it just wasn't there. If anybody finds this or knows this information, please put it on the blog. But one thing I was very curious about with the statement of, I know who killed the German couple. Was he saying this before their bodies were found? Right, 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 right. Because, right. I mean, of course, it, 
you could see how he would believe that they were were killed but but to to make a statement like that before the bodies were in fact found would be a big huge red flag and as you said another red flag is that you have two individuals who share the same last name who in fact are brothers aha aha it goes back to that profiling right right and that's the thing here we're going to start to see some things regarding this profile and i think that you know, not only just the profile itself, but once they're collecting, the task force is collecting all this information that's coming in, mm-hmm. possible leads, possible evidence, clues, names that are coming up time and time again throughout the course of their investigation. You you really want to go when, okay, when we need to talk to 2,000 people or maybe more than 2,000 people, let's create a list of people and go, how many boxes do does each individual potentially check off? Right. Because we have to prioritize who we're going to speak with. We can't just have a pool of suspects being 2000 people. And then they whittle it down to, what did we say? 200 and then to 30. Right. But now on this list of 30, it appears that we have two men who are in fact brothers and we do have them fitting some portions of the profile itself. You know, just the simple statement of somebody saying, you know what? It would be easy to abduct people out in that area. That to me doesn't, does not set off any alarm bells as far as uh, suspecting this person of of being an abductor or a killer. What it points out to me immediately is this person obviously feels that he has a strong connection to that area to that, that he's familiar and he has knowledge about that area. Well, that's one thing that was in the profile to be looking for. We also have a situation where the other man, Richard Millett, he has a criminal record also in the profile. One of the things on his record involves a gun charge. Again, as you pointed out back to the profile. Now, there was also another Millett that is involved in this whole portion of the investigation. Ivan Millett. All three of them are brothers. They're brothers from a very large family. I think that there were 10 brothers total and four sisters. Yeah, 14 siblings total. Yeah, so we're talking a huge family here. Now, Ivan Mm -hmm. was, in fact, familiar to the task force. This is because he was called in on the tip hotline. Now, the caller thought that he fit some aspects of the profile. Plus, the caller said that he drove a four-wheel drive and owned some guns. Right. Known to shoot guns, has a four-wheeler, also lives in a rural area. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, even more interesting than all of that, um, this next stuff, again, comes from the Sydney Morning Herald. And the Herald really covered this case, covered this story from top to bottom, covering it for years. There is an article by Stephen Warnock where we have a former senior constable, Paul Gordon. Now, anybody familiar with this case, there there's some alarm bells that are going to go off because this Paul Gordon is a complicated character in this story, and we can get into that a little more. But what's important here is some things that we know that did, in fact, happen. We just don't know exactly how they happened because they reported they were reported to the newspaper in a strange way, right? Mm-hmm. So according to one version of the story, Paul Gordon 
was working on a theory that Liverpool, I guess this is an exit that is along the way from Sydney to Melbourne via the Hume Highway. He or somebody else came up with the theory that there are hundreds of hitchhikers thumbing lifts south in this area, and that maybe this is where the killer or killers were getting their victims from. Using this theory, they decide to go back and they are checking through police files for past crimes against hitchhikers in that area. What they find is a case from April of 1971, right? So almost two decades before our victims start disappearing. Right, right. In this case, the offender or alleged offender was a man named Ivan Millett. He was accused of assault, rape, and threatening to kill two female hitchhikers in April of 1971. So we have the hitchhikers. We have a, a pair of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have a similar type crime, although it does not end in murder. But the reason why this crime right. does not end in murder, the, the two hitchhikers, they got away from this man. Right. And this is basically because they, they tricked him and they had to escape him. He didn't, he didn't let them go. Nothing like that. They had to escape. And after reviewing the case, personally, Captain, I believe he very, very likely would have killed both of them. He, in fact, according to the two victims, did say at one point his intention was to do just that. Millette beat the charges, though. Mm. And if you want, we can we can get into that. It's a little, it's a bit of a difficult story, and it's it's a bit of a long one. But in the end, his his lawyer pulled some tricky shit and got him out of those charges. Okay. What this, do you mean tricky shit? Well, the lawyer was able to prove that the two women that he picked up were, in fact, lesbians. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the lawyer was... So... so well... All right. But yeah, but okay, here, here's the problem with that. It's 1971, 1972... When he right. points this out, this confuses the jury back then. Right. And, and you see what I mean? And, and, and it, it's been an uphill battle for anybody that has come forward with any allegations of sexual assault or rape. Right. It's, it's been an uphill back battle. Then, so back then it was like big time. You know, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, it's pathetic, but yeah, keep going. Well, I will say, I do want to say this real quick too. The, the attorney that was representing Ivan Millet at the time, he is, I believe he's deceased now. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a homosexual man. Mm-hmm. So in, in a sense, and I think, well, I shouldn't say I think. I know because interviews late in his life, he says that he really regretted using that tactic. Um, but that's the tactic that's that he job. chose. Yeah, right. he chose to use that strategy. Right. It was shameful, but it worked. At the time, that is that that is the problem with that profession because it's like you. It's very important to have good uh, defense attorneys, but at the same time, it's and you don't want to assume that they're bad individuals because they help these awful people get out of crimes. Well, Millet may have just been, and I mean Ivan, he's just super lucky, right? Because he was also facing charges and these were hefty charges of armed robbery in fact these were robberies that he committed with one of his other brothers that, yeah that we've already named what ended up happening in that situation is 
those charges, I believe they were dropped because of the way that the they were investigated. There was rumors of misconduct on the pot on the part of the police and the investigators in those crimes. Mm-hmm. And then we have this situation where Ivan Millette picks up these two female hitchhikers and comes pretty close to killing them which and gets is, away with it right. in, in court. Yeah. Which is crazy to me because it's, you have two eyewitnesses. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's not just, he said, she said it's, he said, she said, she said, so yeah, like you said, a little bit of evil luck. But in the in the end, in the nineties, what's going to really stand out to the task force is that even though he may have got away with that crime back in the seventies, this very much fits. It's very similar to what was going on in the backpacker murders. Well, right. Like if we look at the profile, we have two victims. We have you know, sexual intent, I think we could say. I agree. Or or some type of gratification from it. Right. And then on top of that, you have these armed robberies that were committed with him and his brother. And that fits the profile, you know, at least a couple times with them thinking that these, there could be a two attackers and them being related. So the Millette family, they are now pretty much the prime target of this investigation. And if you really want to try to put it in order, I think we're looking at a situation where we have Ivan at the very top of that list, followed by his brother, Richard. Mm -hmm. And Ivan just looks like, I mean, he looks evil. Well, and the other thing that's going to put Ivan and Richard above some of the other brothers in this, even Alex, who we've already named, those two were known to have been working in the area at the time of the disappearances. Mm-hmm. So that puts them at a, at a much higher probability. So they were looking into these men from this family. And the more that they looked, the more that Ivan started to look better and better and fit being their possible unsub. So this becomes even more clear when police get a phone call from the United Kingdom. It's Paul Onions. On November 13th, 1993, Paul called the authorities in the backpacker murders case. He saw the case on the news and he immediately thought of the time when he was attacked way back in 1990. Police never made the connection between Paul's case and the seven unsolved murders. Remember when Paul reported this from the outside looking in, you may have thought you were just dealing with an armed robbery. So now we have a victim coming forward and saying, I believe what happened to me is connected to your unsolved murders. Eventually they get Paul out to the, to Australia and they want to talk with him face to face. They want to show him some materials and they want to know what he knows of his attack. Eventually he positively identifies Ivan Millette as the man who was calling himself Bill, who offered him a ride and tried to take his life, firing the gun at him as he was running from him. Joanne Barry, the woman who was brave enough to stop her van and allow a complete stranger to get inside the vehicle 
when others wouldn't even stop to help poor Paul, she was able to positively identify Ivan Millette as the man that she said she saw that day with the gun. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. To Mint Mobile. All plans come with high speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless. 
with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Cheers, 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 Captain. Law enforcement, they were locking in on this Ivan Millette. They surveilled Ivan for weeks. They tapped his phone. And police located a vehicle that he once owned. This is the four-wheel drive vehicle that Paul Onions says that this man named Bill, Mm quote-unquote Bill, was driving when he picked him up and attacked him. So they found this new owner. They confirmed that it was, in fact, a vehicle that was purchased from Ivan. Still inside the vehicle, they located a 22 caliber bullet under the driver's seat. It matched bullets that were found at the murder scenes. Got him. So this is some, this is some big info here. There's some difficulty with the investigation because of another brother And this brother's name is, in fact, Bill. Right. So what becomes difficult with this case is 
Ivan, for whatever reason, was registering vehicles in his brother's name for a good portion of his life. Mm. The other thing, too. (laughs) Why is he doing that? I don't know if this was with his brother's permission or if he was just doing this on his own. Right. But surely if you are up to no good, it is an advantage for you to be able to drive vehicles but not have them necessarily in your name, right? Mm-hmm. So with all this information and a lot of it being information coming from Paul Onions, it sounds like police are ready to make an arrest and they're going to arrest Ivan Millet. But remember, all along, they anticipated that their killer should they be on to the right guy? If the heat got cranked up too high for his liking, if an arrest was expected, he very likely would want to do it on his own terms and go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Police knew how dangerous whoever this man was. They knew that who they were looking for is probably a weapons enthusiast. So they knew psycho though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is a psycho. So they knew what to expect if they, in fact, had their right guy. So when they go to make the arrest on Ivan Millet, they're going to be a little nervous in this situation, but they're also going to bring everything that you got, right? You bring the kitchen sink. Ivan's house was surrounded by about 50 armed officers, most of them heavily armed officers. Phone calls were placed to the home. The general strategy here is, Captain, you want to try to get your guy to come outside. You really want to avoid going in after him. So on these phone calls, they're trying to explain to him why they want to talk to him, why he is being arrested that day. And in a good strategy here, for many reasons, they basically tell him, look, you're you're suspected in an armed robbery. We need to talk to you about that, and we have... Uh, a warrant for your arrest in regards to that, that case. Notice that they are conveniently avoiding the seven unsolved murders when talking to Ivan. Right. Ivan didn't want to come outside. He, he did this kind of weird game of like cat and mouse where at first he kind of said, yeah, I'll be out. Just give me a few minutes. And then a lot of time would go by and he still had not come out. This, of course, making the police more nervous and more nervous as it goes along. They would call him back. He would try the same tactic. I'm coming out, but I don't understand why you're here to talk to me. I've not done anything wrong. Now he's playing the innocence card. Right. This goes back and forth for a while until he he does eventually end up coming outside. Right. So on May 22nd, 1994, Ivan Millet is arrested. Correct. And we talked about the former constable earlier who gave the story to Steve Warnock and a story to the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Constable Paul Gordon. This is where Paul Gordon's story gets tricky. And I've tried to sift through this, and I can't really find out the, the real details here. But what we do know is that Paul Gordon at some point spoke to the newspaper, okay? And in this time that he's talking to him initially, it seems like he 
not only takes credit for the theory brought forward about the hitchhikers and the location, but he also takes credit for finding the, the previous case from 1971 that names Ivan Millette as the suspect. And he tells this to the newspaper. So mm-hmm. he presents a story in the light where it's almost like I'm the guy that cracked the case. And in a lot of tellings of this story in this case, it seems more so that maybe just as much as that scenario, but it also seems like the Paul onions, the former victim, the survivor that came forward was just as much that cracked this case. Right. And so where Paul Gordon gets in trouble, the, the former constable where he gets in trouble, there was an, a, an agreement amongst the task force and a, and amongst the members that were the closest involved in this investigation and in the arrest of Ivan Millette, that they were not to talk to the newspapers. Paul Gordon did. So Paul Gordon was eventually let go from that task force. That's why it gets difficult to sift through his words and know what to believe and know not what to believe. Right, right. Because we don't know if he was let go because he talked to the paper or if he lied being the guy that quote unquote cracked the case. But that was something that went down. Now, because Paul Gordon spoke to the newspapers, now a lot of their stuff is starting to become public. That's why they didn't want anybody talking to the newspapers that were involved in the task force. It makes it harder to get a conviction. Yeah. And it also makes it tougher for the investigators to continue down the roads that they've already traveled down. They've already started down these roads on investigating Ivan Millette for seven unsolved murders. They've only arrested him for the armed robbery charge. Now Now it shows their hand that this is what we actually want him for. This is what we actually think he's suspected of. Right, and the fact that they're still not for sure if it's if if it's just Ivan that's responsible or is it Ivan and one of his brothers that they've already talked to, and so you don't want to show all your hand because you don't want Ivan to be protecting one of his brothers and you then you have another psychopath that's out on the loose. Well, and you want to make sure that you have your right guy and you want to make sure that you are building your case as such. But now with their cards kind of shown, with their cards out there, this is when the the lead member of the task force says, we were kind of forced at this point to actually start charging him with these unsolved murders. Now, at this same time, the whole thing that's really going down, and actually they've, they've been working their way through this, there were searches, obviously, of Ivan's home and of many of his family members' homes as well. And they were very smart. They did these searches basically all at the same time. So as you pointed out, we can't have the different Millette family members warning each other of what's going on if, in fact, more are involved. Yeah, so now that they have Ivan in their sights, they're going to have to search their property. They they live just outside the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as said, they're going to search some of his family members' homes about the same time, right? Well... They find some interesting things in Ivan's home. Most importantly, they find a twenty-two rifle. Mm-hmm. They find parts to another twenty-two rifle. They find a pistol, and they find one of those large Bowie knives. Now, he 
he has said time and time again to the investigators that he didn't own any weapons. And of course, they immediately find weapons inside his home. They also recovered a trove of items believed to belong to the killed hitchhikers. These items included clothing, tents, sleeping bags, backpacks, cooking and camping equipment, and cameras. This is a lot of stuff. And some of this stuff, they can't 100% say belong to a victim. Right. But they can say, I believe it was with one of the, it was with some of the um, camping equipment. Yeah, they found it like was a, a st- tent. And- yeah. No, but what I mean by this is there there was one of these items, you couldn't purchase it in, in Australia. Right. You had to purchase it from where one of the victims was from. So the the probability that he would own something like this, highly unlikely. Right. And then on top of that, we have scenarios where there are items that do seem to, in fact, belong to the victims where you can make a direct connection, where there's more proof of such, like the initials being stitched into one of the items. Right. And so this is not looking good for Ivan. So they searched his mother's home as well, and at least three of his brother's homes Mm -hmm. as well. So this would be Alex, Richard, and Bill. I believe his father was dead. His father had passed away. Wait, they would have searched at least four of the brothers because Walter, his home was searched as well. Mm -hmm. His sister, Ivan's sister, is a bit tricky for me because, look... So that not only is this a big family with a lot of brothers and a lot of moving pieces, but at one time throughout their adult lives, they were all, a lot of them were moving back and forth in and out of mom's home. Mm-hmm. And so some of them lived together for a while under her, her roof. And I believe that maybe even Ivan and his sister shared a home together at one time. What the, the, the big problem is with this is that not only do they find these these damning items inside Ivan's home, they start finding other items that belong to these victims in the homes of his relatives as well. And again, this is things like clothing, tents, backpacks, cookware, things of that nature. Now, some of these brothers' homes, they found guns, lots of ammo, and marijuana. So at the very least, those brothers can be arrested and charged with if they if they had illegal guns, we know that the drugs were illegal. There were charges that were brought forth on that nature. Now, well, yeah, this family was known to one own a bunch of guns, but to be uh, avid shooters. You know, they're like mm-hmm. I said, they lived out of, out of the city, and this is a time where you don't have internet and cable and things like this. So they were avid, you know, gun shooters. Well, and a lot of the brothers had they were rowdy. Let's say right, a lot of them had criminal records well there's there's 10 of them i mean if you grow up in a family just with one other sibling you're going to tend to get in some uh arguments or fights or you know little tussles uh especially if it's you know two boys because you got all those or commit armed robbery together like they did (laughs) yeah but what i'm saying is there's there's 10 of them so you just got this testosterone going and you know, it, it wasn't rumored. I think it's pretty factual that these kids were beat, uh, at least the boys were beat up pretty bad by their father uh, consistently. 
uh, very abusive household. So when you have that going, and that probably stems from anger and stems from a lack of resources and a lack of money, and also you have 14 kids that you're trying to feed, we want to talk about stresses. Um, you know, when when you get beat by your father, you might then try to take that out on your brother. Well, regardless of all these items that they find throughout the different households, mm-hmm. when it, this thing comes to trial, Ivan's going to be the only one facing trial. And he's now being charged with the seven murders as well as the crimes against Paul Onions. Ivan, to his credit, during the whole time that he's being investigated, during the whole time of, of his interrogations and the questioning and the interviewing, right. and even the trial itself, he's always stuck to his guns. He has, regardless of what he's been accused of, he's maintained his innocence throughout. Now, at trial, not only did he maintain his innocence, he, in fact, pointed the finger at a couple of his brothers. This would be Walter and Richard. And his defense that was put forward basically was stating that the crimes were not commit committed by Ivan. They were either committed by one or both Richard and Walter. Right. The interesting thing here too, though, is the crown. Okay. So basically the, the prosecutors and whatnot, they are saying during the course of this trial, we do not have to prove whether Ivan acted alone or not. Right. We just are trying to prove that he was involved, that he did it. And they said that the evidence, they actually pointed this out, which which is weird to me. But at one point, they even said something to the fact that the, the evidence somewhat strongly suggested that he may not have acted alone. But they were so sure that he was, in fact, involved. He is, regardless of who else could have been involved, Ivan was responsible for the crimes we are charging him with. And this time they're going to get a guilty verdict. Yeah. I mean, it was a difficult trial for all the reasons that we just pointed out, but it was in fact, July 27th, 1996, a jury found Ivan Millett guilty of seven unsolved backpacker murders. Mm-hmm. He received seven life sentences for this without the possibility of parole. But our story doesn't end there. Does it captain? We got, we got some more stuff to get through Mm -hmm. because on his first day to the Maitland jail where he was going to be housed, Ivan was beat up by another inmate. So there is your housewarming gift for you, Mr. Ivan. Welcome to prison. Yeah. You get, get your ass kicked on day one. You get fucked up a year later, Ivan and another inmate, George Savah, They worked together in an attempt to escape from prison. However, they were caught in this attempted escape plan. And the next day they find George dead in his cell. Now they move Ivan to another prison, to a maximum security prison uh, at another location. There are some more prison antics here. Uh, Ivan swallowed razor blades and staples in a metal chain. Oh, on one day, swallow some razor blade. Yeah, and then in 2009, he cut off his little finger with a plastic knife on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So this this is a just kind of a real dumbass plan here. But so he he gets this 
this is actually considered a privilege at the prison where he was housed. Mm-hmm. If you were under good behavior for X amount of period, at some point you are allowed to receive a, a plastic knife, like what right. you would get at a picnic, right? A plastic knife to, to use while eating your meals. He had received this privilege, and once he did so, he decides to take a plastic knife and attempts to cut off his little finger, to which he was successful. But his goal was to mail, to put the finger in the mail, put it in an envelope, hand it off to a guard, and ask them to mail it. Well, as the newspaper put it, cutting off a finger is quite painful. So once he got to that part of the plan where the finger is now off, he had trouble putting it in the envelope and getting it to the guard. Basically, his plan went sideways real quick because he didn't account for how much pain he would be in. Uh, This, he was transferred to... because he's a psycho. He was transferred to a hospital because of this, but they could not reattach the finger. So Mm. it is no more. Uh, he has on several occasions attempted hunger strikes to get things that he wants to get his way. Mm-hmm. The most famous of these hunger strikes uh, lasted nine days. This was because he wanted a PlayStation in his cell. The hunger strike ended, and I'm very happy to report that little Ivan did not get his PlayStation. Oh, so sad. One key thing with this case has always been are there more victims? Yeah. And if there are, how many more? Well, are there more victims? I mean, because like you said, he had the crimes a decade earlier that he didn't, uh, he, he didn't get it. He got acquitted for. Mm -hmm. So that just makes you wonder how many missing people are there and how many missing people have not been reported missing because they were foreigners. Well, and we're also talking about from from the time that he abducted those two women, beat the charges, and then to the time that he's finally arrested, we have two decades that went by. Right. Two decades that went by. And the murders that he's convicted of, they actually happened in just the years leading up to his capture. Right. So how long was he active for? And if, in fact, he was going to kill those victims back in 1971, was that his intention all along if he was active that entire time? I mean, we know he shot at Paul Onions, so it appears that, that murder was his intent there, mm-hmm. or at the very least was his reaction to Paul trying to flee him. Now, we know that Ivan was questioned back in 2004, this regarding the disappearance of two nurses back in 1980. He was working in the area at the time. Then two years later in 2006, Ivan was named by police as the main suspect in a double homicide. In all, it looks like there may have been about 10 more cases that they, you know, they, they, they like him for it. They think that he's a good suspect in these 10 other cases. And one of these cases dates all the way back to 1971. But we don't think he's going to confess to these. Mm, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, he's never he's never been one to confess. He's always maintained his innocence throughout, even all this time in prison. Mm-hmm. Possible deathbed confession. Yeah, and the thing here though too is, I I really wonder about a lot of these other cases because it would point out to me a couple of things. Either he wasn't taking 
trophies from the earlier victims mm-hmm. or he discarded of those trophies at some point. It's just very difficult because I, I think he's probably good for some more. I don't think he's good for all 10 or 12 of these, depending on what list you look at. Well, we both agree that he's responsible for the attacks on the uh, the, the lesbian couple. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, we agree on that. Yeah, I'm actually that, that, really shocked that even whatever, you know, regardless of the strategy, I'm shocked that any strategy worked in that case yeah, after reviewing it. But I think you said it best, though. I think it was because it was so, um, you know, so many years ago. Mm-hmm. That that's why the, the, that malarkey worked. But that uh, being, a, you know, almost caught for that and then the arm robbery, that could have been enough to possibly scare this psycho away for a while mm-hmm. so like you said uh, do you like him for ever all these crimes i don't know i think he would have would have been taking more items from the victims like you were saying mm-hmm. yeah i i wonder in some of these cases i've seen with two of them that i've reviewed out of that list those two almost feel to me like there is no real connection and look, I get it. There is no real connection between Ivan and the ones that he is convicted of. But in the others, there seems to be more of a scenario where he looks good for those. He looks, there is some connection. He was in the area at the time. He may have been active at the time, so on and so forth. Right. A couple of them, you'll look like, you wonder if they're just starting, hey, well, let's take a shot at it. It's like throwing a dart at the board and hoping that you close a case. Off of off of little to nothing, right? So, in um, 2012, his nephew Matthew Millette was convicted in court of murder because in 2010 he attacked a boy named David Archiloni. Mm-hmm. So this poor kid, David, was struck over the head with a battle axe. It was a double-bladed battle axe. And get this. This attack took place in the Belanglo State Forest, the same place where Ivan Millette buried seven victims in the 90s. So David was, I don't know if you would call him a friend, but they knew each other. Matthew and David knew each other. And another guy, Cohen Klein, was friends with Matthew Millette as well. The two 19-year-olds, Matthew and Cohen, they lured 17-year-old David. This was on his birthday to the state forest. They got him to go along with them because they were promising him, hey, it's your birthday. We're going to party at the state forest. We got booze. We got pot. Mm-hmm. Really, the whole thing was a setup because once they get there, at some point, Matthew starts chasing David around a car with the axe. Now, the super gross and disgusting thing in this case is the Cohen, the, the Cohen Klein, the other person there, Matthew's friend. Right. As Matthew is attacking David, Cohen, he recorded the whole thing on the audio anyway, on his mobile phone. And both of these guys were convicted. Millette got 43 years, and then we have Klein got 30 years. I'm sorry, might have been 32. My notes are a little difficult here. But in the Klein case, he has a minimum sentence of 22 years. 
that he's going to face for that. Mm-hmm. And the saddest part of it is this murder took about two minutes to commit the audio recording. It recorded the full two minutes and the, I mean, the judges heard it and, and some of the people at trial heard portions of this audio. And it was very clear that this young man, this boy, David was, he was basically tortured and suffered very badly the last two minutes of his life. The, the strangest thing about this Matthew Millette character, the, the, the nephew who's now in prison, and I don't know if there's a way to change this or, or the, the exact stipulations of his sentencing, this Matthew Millette guy should never be allowed out of prison. Yeah. It's I think absolute it's, worst. I, I, I really think, and I don't want to get, get into this too much, but I think, you know, cost effectiveness and all this stuff with the death penalty, it doesn't work for some states, but it should be this simple. You kill somebody, uh, you know, uh, you know, first degree murder, you go well, away for life. Yeah, yeah. Let's not get. This is a long road to go down. Right, right. With but you know what I mean, not like a lot of time. I, you know, he, he he tortured this guy. We have uh, and we know he did it. Av- I mean, yeah. evidence of yeah. it, and and he's he's going to possibly get out one day. And all he's going to do is he's chances are now what we can hope for is that he will not be a model uh, citizen in prison, and then he'll have to do do more time. But uh, but yeah, these these individuals they they can't be helped. Well, as Justice Matthews pointed out during the trial and at the during the sentencing phase anyway, was that Millette showed no remorse and poses a huge serious threat to the community. This basically was a cold blooded, premeditated thrill kill mm-hmm. that this that this guy did. And then on top of that, what's weird too is that is not his his last name by birth. Yes, he's related to Ivan Millette, but he's like the the great. He's like a, a, a cousin or sorry, a great right. nephew of him. And he had a different last name, but changed it because it's to Millette when he was right, 14. Right. Now, I don't know if he was just going by the last name of Millette rather than officially having changed it. But regardless, I mean, right. You're a psycho. You see where we're going with that. Yeah. Now, we talked about the case against Neville Knight in the trailer. And I'm betting some of you are wondering what does that have to do with this case? We never really gave you the outcome of the story of the 16 year old boy who was picked up by the cab driver, the explosion that the cab driver heard the boy fired a gun through the back seat, shooting Neville in the back. Okay. And the boy, rather than helping Neville, he just opened up the door, observed the damage. He wanted to see the damage done, and he ran off into the darkness. Mm-hmm. We do have a man that was convicted of that crime. This was a guy that confessed shortly after. This was a few months after the fact. We have Alan Dillon who confessed to shooting Neville Knight in the back in that cab. He was sentenced to five years for the shooting. The attack left Neville Knight a paraplegic. 
And he didn't live an extremely long life. He did live many years after that, and he did a lot of good for other people. He became an advocate for uh, wounded individuals. So he did a lot of good in his life, but where this story kind of circles back around is in 2015, Ivan's brother, Boris Millette, he said that Ivan told him he was the one that shot Neville Knight back in 1962 in that cab, that he shot the cab driver, observed him, and ran off. Now, where we get the confession from is many years later, Alan Dillon, the man who served five years for this attack, mm-hmm. he said the way it was presented to him during the interviews with police was that they suspected his younger brother, Alan Dillon's younger brother, of committing the crime. Alan Dillon took it upon himself to give them a false confession to spare his brother the jail sentence. Right. And unfortunately, all these years later, when this story finally comes to light in 2015, Neville Knight is no longer around to, to confirm these suspicions. But if, in fact, Boris's statements regarding his brother saying, I was the one that shot that cab driver in 1962, you can see the progression. And it also goes to what you can imagine Ivan was doing to his victims out there in the state forest as he traveled, as he chased them down. Remember, choice of weapon killer, choice of victim killer. Mm-hmm. He got them out there. He chose his weapons. He chose his attack. And it's almost you see the progression that started at the age of 16 when he sat in the back of that cab and fired the gun into the seat and into the back of Neville Knight. We do have a somewhat of an update. I know it's our first time covering this, but Ivan has been in the news quite a bit lately. And this is because in May of this year, May of 2019, Ivan Millette was, it's been reported anyway that he was diagnosed with terminal esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. And I know I probably didn't say that in the best way, but it's basically c- cancer of the esophagus. This, from my understanding of a friend of mine, his father um, suffered this same type of cancer. And from what I've been told, this is not a, look, they're all bad cancers, but this one is particularly bad where the, the survival rate is not very high at all. Mm-hmm. So as you pointed out earlier, Captain, you wonder, given that this man probably has days left, if in fact we will see some type of deathbed confession, maybe it's maybe it's not all the information that's out there. Maybe it doesn't, you know, but maybe it clears some things up. We have other family members of his that have been accused by the public and and suspicions upon them throughout the years. Ivan did say through when he was in prison, many years after he was convicted, that his brothers are not guilty of anything, although he still claims to be innocent of the murders himself. Right, but I want to break down that scenario a little bit better because I think him trying to put the blame on his brothers, I think that eventually came back to his mother and he was kind of favored by his mother Ivan was so eventually at some point the rumor is or or what people speculate is that he told his mother hey they're not responsible 
and actually confessed to her all of his crimes. That's what they believe. Yeah. Yeah. I I went down that road and I, um, but it's not like she has wrote him down and, uh, did a press conference about it or anything. So the way that I understand that is that the, one of the lead investigators, I believe he was the man in charge of the task force. He, he wrote a book and his name escapes me at the moment, but he wrote a book about the case. And actually there, there are several books out there regarding this case. Yes. The way that I understand the story is he, that investigator eventually heard this statement through one of the brothers that the mm-hmm. mother, the mother apparently told one of the brothers, Ivan confessed to me and then she passed away. So like everything else with this story, it's not a clean, it's not a clean ending. It's okay. The story comes from one of the other brothers. We know that other brothers were well, and the other claim. suspects right. or, or, you know, at least suspicion from the public. Yeah. Because some of the items that they found, uh, that they believe Ivan had were actually found in his brother's possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but now if you follow that story back, it was items that he took from his family, his home when he moved. So it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like these items just happened to be at his house. These items came from the family's house. Um, but I, I think what's also really interesting is the his defense lawyer that which defended him, you know, decades earlier in, in the trial of the Marsden, I think was yeah. his last name. And before he passed away, he was saying that he believed um, that none of the brothers actually helped Ivan, but it was actually Ivan's sister that helped him commit yeah. these crimes. Yeah, I saw that. The the other thing that's weird here, though, while we talk about the brothers, um, Walter Millette. So the one of the most damning pieces of evidence against Ivan during the course of his trial. Mm-hmm. Remember, we stated that there were some firearms found in Ivan's home. But actually, the, the thing that was worse for him was the piece. I said there were some gun parts that were found in his home. Mm-hmm. It was one of the parts of of a 22 rifle that was found. That was a piece of evidence that was so very strong against Ivan because it was found concealed in his home, like hidden, like purposely. If you saw the thing, you knew like somebody was trying to hide this and not just hide it for today, tomorrow or next week. They didn't want anybody to find it ever. Mm-hmm. So when they found this piece and they ran their ballistics on it, of course they had to, you know, reattach it to other pieces of, of guns and things like that. But what they determined after firing bullets through that part was that the markings on those bullets matched markings on bullets at multiple crime scenes at multiple murder scenes, basically knowing that that part of that gun was involved in the murder of those victims that was found in Ivan's home and his possession. What's interesting is out of all these brothers, we say he's got four sisters and, and nine brothers, big family. Out of the whole family, Ivan had a, a a fairly sophisticated security system. And he was known to be extremely protective and secure of his home. 
And we can only imagine the, the many reasons why. Mm-hmm. Out of all of his family, Walter Millette was the only one that had access 24-7 to his home. So many have wondered throughout the years, this piece of evidence that was really the strongest piece of evidence against Ivan, Walter would have had the ability to place it in the home. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with this family, and and we could probably spend another hour talking about some of the speculation, but just to go over it really quickly, at some point people believe that Ivan was having affairs with his brother's wives. Um, there's also then rumors that um, Ivan was having um, a sexual relationship with one of his sisters. Uh, supposedly the whole family knew about it. Uh, supposedly multiple brothers had uh, sexual relationships with th- that um, sister. You know, like I said, there was reports of physical abuse from the father, possible physical abuse from the mother. Um, and so then you wonder if he was having an affair with one of his brother's wives, is that enough to, you know, plant evidence, you know, to get him convicted of a crime he didn't commit? Uh, there's just so many things strange about this family and, and so many things you could dive in, um, the speculation of this family. Well, Ivan Millette is often referred to as Australia's most notorious and infamous serial killer. And even though we have the convictions, we are left here today believing we still do not have all the answers. And how about a little recommended reading before we wrap things up for this week? This week we're going to recommend BTK, the true story behind the 30-year hunt for the notorious Wichita serial killer by the great John Douglas. This, of course, this recommendation in the spirit of of Mind Hunter season two, which we have been discussing and will be discussing on our other great show off the record. So until next week, everybody out there, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.